this man, who is a mental health professional, looked me in the eye when I said that I regret my transition and said, perhaps you're non-binary. What? Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and today I'm speaking with Sinead Watson, a young woman who lives in Glasgow, who transitioned to live as a trans man, who took hormones, had radical surgery, and lived to regret it. Sinead is now speaking out about the ease with which young, troubled women such as herself are identified as transgender and sent on a pathway of medical intervention that is irreversible. We speak about the Sandiford Gender Clinic that treated, for want of a better word, Sinead, and how, in many ways, it could be as bad, if not worse, than JIDS, the Gender Identity Clinic that we've heard lots and lots about since a report recommended its closure next spring. So the Sandiford Clinic runs along the same lines, and I think that you'll be really shocked to hear the extent to which young people are being transitioned and all of the needs that they have separate from gender identity, such as mental health issues, eating disorders, sexual abuse, are being ignored. I am so thrilled that we've got to have this conversation because it's I've really, really admired what you've been doing. It's made such a huge difference, I can't tell you. For a while I was worried that it wasn't make, making much of a difference because... You know, it's difficult to, to share something so personal and so painful and then get dogpiled for it online. But then the messages started coming through from people who, you know, not always detransitioners, though I do hear from a lot of them. A lot of the time it's clinicians, a lot of the time it's parents, a lot of the time it's journalists and activists and things like that. And we have started to see change, you know. So everything that happened with JIDS and the cast review, Gradually, we are starting to see it, and I, if I could take credit for just the tiniest slither of that, it will make all the abuse that I've got for it worth it. I think you can take more than a tiny slither. I've been talking to people who have been through similar, and you know, all around the age of kind of 25, 30, very slightly older maybe, which goes to show how long this has taken to, to expose, but how at the moment we're at some watershed moment I think and you know they they have said that were it not for you and Richie and you know one or two others because it's still so few isn't it speaking out then they would never have thought that they that their experiences really were as they were and it's classic gaslighting isn't it mm-hmm. yeah it's so common that you know a lot of the detransition, most of them are younger than me, sometimes by quite a margin. Like you said 25 to 30, but a good chunk of the detransitioners I speak to, they're only 21 or 22, you know? It's, like, it's, it's really, really, especially the American ones, I've realised, tend to be a bit younger. Um, and obviously, Kira Bell, who's a really big name over here, um, was 16 when this started for her, you know? And so I speak to them and they'll say things like, when I started talking about maybe regretting it in the trans spaces that I'm on, they were told, oh, regret is normal, but it'll go away. And when they said, oh, no, I think this is really bad, I think I've made a terrible mistake, they lost all their friends, 
They were called horrific names. You know, people try to dox them. They're terrified. And so whenever they send me a message where they're like, I don't have the courage to come out yet, but I'm following you and I'm watching what you're doing and I think one day I'll share my, share my story. And that means so much to me. They shouldn't have to do that. But I do think along with what's been happening to women, a big key part that's going to take gender ideology or whatever the hell you want to call it down will be the cases of rush transition and regret. The Sandyford Clinic strikes me as worse in some ways than JIDS, than the Tavistock. But I want to just start with, um, I suppose, a question which really struck me when I've heard you speak and read your words. And it's about conversion therapy. And the reason why I want to talk about that is not just because of the hot debate about so-called trans conversion therapy is the same as gay conversion therapy when we know it's the polar opposite. But I, as an undercover journalist, underwent gay conversion therapy back in 2013 in a Christian community um, in Colorado. And even though I was using an assumed name, I developed a false persona. Um, it was deeply distressing and it's sadistic. And then... On the other hand, we have trans activists and some clinicians daring to use the term to apply to talking therapies or just anything other than instant affirmation. So can we start with, with that, um, Sinead, just about what your experience was of being affirmed? Yeah, I mean, I'm really, really glad we're starting with this because... In particular, I think the whole conversion therapy talk is absolutely disgusting. It really, really gets to me. Um, so we'll get into that. But what affirmation only is for the uninitiated is basically when I went to the Sandyford Clinic in Glasgow, I self-referred. And when I had my first appointment, so they had not evaluated me, me yet. They hadn't even spoken to me yet. I literally just walked in. And they asked me, you know, how I identified and what my pronouns were. And I said, I'm a trans man, he, him. And they were like, right, brilliant. Uh, come sit down, Mr. Watson, Sean, he, him pronouns, right off the bat, before knowing anything. And you could say, oh, they're just being polite, they're just being polite. But they continued with that after they had a look at my file, which they accessed from my GP and saw a very, very long history of mental health issues and still it was Mr Sean Watson, he him, you're a trans man. There was nothing, no challenge. Not once did they say to me, I can see that there's been some sexual abuse in your past. Can we talk about how that may have impacted the fact that you don't feel comfortable being a woman, which I'm not even a therapist and that seems pretty obvious to me that that would make you feel that way. And here's this gender specialist, this professional, sitting in front of me, calling me Mr. Sean Watson, despite the fact he has my file in his hand. So that's the affirmation approach. Wow. And that must have felt, at the time, in that context where you were on the road to transition, that must have felt great. It felt so good because I wasn't an idiot. I had problems, but I wasn't an idiot. And at the back of my mind, 
I did think, you know, this has happened and I've been through this and what if that's why I hate myself so much? I was self-aware enough to at least ponder on it. And then I went into the clinic and when they affirmed me immediately, I thought, well, these are professionals. So if I wasn't trans, they would know and they would tell me. So if they're affirming me, it means that I'm right and I am trans. And so ironically, by going to this gender clinic, it actually convinced me even more that I was trans when I wasn't. So just to kind of make that analogy again, because this, I think, is what most people refuse to understand or are misled about. When I was undercover doing lesbian conversion therapy, so I presented at this clinic um, and it was ideological in the extreme. They wanted no gays, no lesbians in their community. They didn't really care how they got to that. Even though I said the only reason why I had applied to have this therapy to become straight was because of the external anti-lesbianism and upset to my parents that there was nothing in me that hated being a lesbian. What they could and should have done was refer me to a gay and lesbian affirming church because my cover story was that I was a Christian that had been kicked out of my home and my community. What they did to me in these sessions was tell me I was broken I'd been sexually abused as a child, that my father was too dominant, that my mother neglected me, that my older brother must have suffocated me, that my younger brother ignored... I mean, they went through every single possible scenario as to how I was broken. I mean, it was was so bad that even I, as an out lesbian, you know, at that time, you know, it was coming up to 40 years, um, I, I I would go back to my hotel in a state. And they went through every single possible way in which I had become broken, damaged, and a freak. Now, obviously at the end, they thought that they'd put the fear of God in me. They didn't care whether or not I would actually be attracted to Nigel in the house church and denounce my lesbianism. They just wanted me to stop being a lesbian. Now... Mm. That's conversion therapy. And that is nowhere near the worst kind of conversion therapy that I'd heard about. So let's then compare what they, the trans activists, call conversion therapy when it comes to trans. What would the alternative to affirmation have looked like if they treated you well, taken note of your history and wanted to actually get to the root of the problem? Well, it would just be not only common sense, but good clinical, clinically neutral practice where I would come in as a patient. Uh, They wouldn't have any ideology. They would just see me as a patient. They would look at my history. They would say, okay, sexual abuse, trauma, depression, a drinking problem, uh, struggles with my own sexuality, So they would look at all of that and they'd say, okay, these are very complicated issues. So before we start you on the path with irreversible treatment, we want to talk to you about these things. So what happened in 2012? What happened in 2014? Why do you not like that you're attracted to women? Why is it that you 
feel uncomfortable with your breasts? Why is it that you feel that you would be safer as a man? You know, just talk therapy, not telling me that I'm wrong or telling me that I'm right, just listening. And it would have been so easy and very, very quick to connect the dots that they would say, you don't hate being a woman because you were born with a condition called gender dysphoria, which they already knew wasn't true because I told them on my first appointment that I didn't have dysphoria prior to my teens. They knew I wasn't a trans child. So <laughs> it's, it, it's stunning that they actually done this to me. But all it would cause is say, okay, maybe you don't hate being a woman because you have this condition, maybe you hate being a woman because you have been abused for being a woman. Can we talk about that maybe that's a possibility? But there was none of that. And I am by far not the only detransitioned woman I've spoke to who experienced that. So not only did they just take it as a given, your self-diagnoses that you were a trans man and they affirmed you, using those pronouns during your first appointment, calling you Mr, which must have felt exhilarating at that time. But not only did they do that, but they didn't offer you any support or treatment for the distress that had been brought about by being sexually abused. Why, no. why couldn't... I mean, even if you take the kind of best faith scenario um, and, and think of the... I mean, it, it, it's unforgivable, but think of the clinician as naive following orders, if you like, use the affirmation model or you'll harm or trans children will die everywhere, which is yeah. actually what they say, as we know. But even if that had been the approach that they'd taken to your trans identity, why would they not be offering you some support and some treatment for your alcoholism, mental health issues, the fact that you had clearly, in my view, um, been suffering from some kind of trauma because one wouldn't cancel the other out and am I right in thinking they thought that actually you transitioning would solve everything that's certainly how it felt you know I mean because I've said this before but I do think that it's important um, I was hospitalized on a psychiatric unit in 2014 and it did come up while I was at the clinic they did say to me you know we can see in your file that you spent time at Gartnaval Royal. What was that about? And I said, oh, it's because I'm trans and I'm depressed because I haven't transitioned yet. And you know, that was me saying that because I believed I was trans, but it was their jobs as my doctor to say, okay, well, actually that was a, a severe enough break that you were escorted to and put onto a psychiatric ward. So we should probably talk about what was happening in your life leading up to that break. That didn't happen. They didn't ask for any details. That's quite incredible when we know that to feel that you are trapped in the wrong body, and I know that's not the lingo that's used these days, but, but to feel that your body is wrong, that you have to have lifelong hormones and surgery to correct it, we know that that is not sanity. That is not a kind of sane... Um, state of mind at that time. We understand it about people that say they have body dysmorphia and that they want to have a healthy limb removed. We, we know that that is a, a mental health condition. Um, but now being trans is not. It's, it's a choice and it's an in, inbred identity. 
So what would you say about the Sandyford Clinic? I mean, you were on a waiting list. You must have been quite nervous and excited to go there, thinking this is it, this is going to sort everything out. Mm-hmm. T- describe for, for the listener what it's like to go in through the door, go to reception, sit in the um, the consulting room. H- how does it all work? So most people don't actually understand this. They only know about going to their own GP. Yeah, I mean, so um, I called the Sandiford up in early 2014 and I said, um, I'm trans and I want to come to the clinic. And they said, OK, we'll put you on the waiting list and we'll see you in 12 to 13 months. No counselling or therapy during that period. Um, So, yeah, I was very nervous. I was very excited. I got very impatient. And in fact, my breakdown in hospitalisation was during the waiting period. They then called me in early 2015 and said, OK, you're coming in for your first appointment. And they gave me the date. And I went up and the Sandyford is primarily a sexual health clinic. It's not just a gender clinic. So when I say that I want the Sandyford shut down, what I'm really saying is I want the child gender clinic shut down. The whole clinic itself deals with like STDs and, and stuff like that and counselling. So you walk through the door and you go up to reception. They ask you what part of the clinic is seeing you. I said the gender clinic. So they pointed me right to the back of it and said, you go up the stairs and you go down a really long corridor, you go up some more stairs, and then you're in the gender section. So up I went, and I walked through the door, and I walked up to reception, and I said, my name's Sean Watson, and I'm here to see a gender therapist. And they said, oh, like, wonderful, just have a wait in the seating area. And I went round, and there was two other people, and I'm not meaning this in a derogatory way, but two very clear trans women, um, older trans women, Um, who were sitting there and we kind of awkwardly smiled at one another but there was no conversation and I waited for about 20 minutes and he came out and he got me and he took me into a little sort of waiting room and gave me a glass of water and he was lovely he was very friendly um, very good at small talk very good at making little funny jokes could put me at complete ease made me feel very comfortable instantly affirmed me so that immediately had me on a high that's the first time anyone other than my friends had treated me that way um and I felt great and we had a little bit of small talk I told him that I had just started uni that I was just out of a relationship with a, a girl I'd been dating at the time and that yeah I was a bit sad about that but I was excited for my future now that I was here and he was like great so We need to go through the basics. He asked me about my childhood. That's when I said I wasn't a trans kid. Absolutely no dysphoria whatsoever. I was a very happy little girl. Um, Then he moved on and he was, you know, what are you studying at university? What do you want to do when you leave university? Like, not the way I expected the conversation was going to go because I thought this was my fear. And I think a lot of people who haven't been to gender clinics but are going to go worry about this. I thought I was going to get interrogated and told, actually, you're not trans, so you need to leave the clinic. But they were just so lovely and friendly and affirming. And we spent the about 90% of it doing small talk and very little of it talking about gender transition. So did they at any stage, Sinead, explain to you what being trans is? The origins, 
a did, did they describe it as a condition as an identity did you get any information from about where they were coming from on this they didn't really do a lot of explaining they asked me what i thought transition was and they asked me what i thought being trans meant um and so i said to them i think that being trans is when i can't believe i said this I do apologise, but this is how far gone I was. I said, I believe that being trans is when I have a female body but a male brain and transition will fix my body and make me a man. And they were like, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. Didn't ask any more of that, didn't correct me, didn't say anything else, just accepted what I was saying. And then they moved right into, do you know what taking testosterone is going to do to you? And I was like, yeah, I know it's going to give me a beard. I know it's going to deepen my voice. I know it's going to redistribute my fat. And they're like, oh, okay, good. That's really good. You've done your research. Here's a pamphlet <laughs> about the side effects of testosterone. And that was it. And at that stage, did you know that they were going to prescribe you testosterone? I didn't think they would before I went up. Because, again, I had that fear that they were going to say I wasn't trans enough. But yeah. after that first appointment... I knew, you know, they gave me the pamphlet with the side effects of the testosterone. And when they were saying to me, you know, what changes do you want? And I said, I really want a deeper voice because I hate my voice. I really want to grow the beard. Um, I really want the fat redistribution. I really, really want the muscle mass. And they were like, oh, okay, but you know that you might lose your head hair. You know that you might get acne and uh, you know that you might gain a lot of weight as well. How do you feel about those changes? And I was like, I don't care. I just need to transition. And they're like, okay, as long as you understand that you might be bald, fat and spotty. You know, <laughs> like, They didn't word it quite like that, but they were basically trying to make sure that I would be comfortable if the transition didn't make me into a hot guy, but instead make me, made me into a, you know, ugly guy. And when I said, I don't care if that's what happened, they were like, grand, right? that's good as long as you understand that. So their key concern was that you didn't mind if you weren't Brad Pitt on testosterone. Yeah. When did you get cleared for your first testosterone injection? Okay, so I the first appointment was in early 2015. I can't remember the exact month. It was either February or March. Um, but I purposely don't say the month because I don't know which one and I don't want to get called a liar as soon as I can get access to my files and tell you. Um, but I do know that my first injection injection of testosterone. My testosterone was called Sustenin 250, which is actually a combination of quite a few different things, was in July of that same year. So it took some months. Um, yeah, I, I get that expression all the time when I say that. It didn't even take me a year. It took maybe five months. Um, but they didn't actually... The clinic themselves didn't give me the testosterone. They sent the prescription to my GP and so it wasn't actually at the Sandyford where I'd done my first injection. It was at my GP office. Mm -hmm. So I went to my GP office and a nurse came in and she said, do you want me to do the first shot or would you want to do it yourself? And I was a bit scared of needles. So I was like, I'll do the first one myself because if you do it and it hurts, I know I, I will, I'll never do it. So just let me do it the first time. And she showed me how to grab the fat on my thigh she told me how to aspirate. She told me how far to push the needle in. And I'd done the first shot. And, you know, it's nippy, but you, you do it. 
And then I pulled it out and she said, you inject this every three weeks. And once we get you up to the appropriate levels, we will increase your dosage. So whatever you do, don't inject the full vial. You're only injecting half. Of course I injected the full vial, you know? Really? That, that's the thing because injecting the full vial is obviously really bad for you because if you dramatically increase the levels of testosterone in a female body, it has side effects because you're not supposed to have testosterone levels that big. That's why they gradually increase the dosage. But they let me walk away with full files for several months and saying to me, don't inject the full thing. But of course I did, because I was an idiot and I thought injecting the full thing would make me trans more. But they were over-medicating you. So, so did they not say, where's the leftover testosterone or we're not going to give you any more until you finish that lot because we gave you twice as much that you're supposed to have taken? No. Never came up. Never got asked that. Wow. Wow. So so there you were. You'd had no counselling. You had basically diagnosed yourself. Uh, you were affirmed. There was small talk at the clinic. Did you... Presumably you went along there, short hair, dressed in kind of classic male clothing, and that is all that was required, that social transition, as they call it, but we would call it cross-dressing or... Here's an interesting thing. Um, I'm sure your listeners will know, but just in case they don't, I'll explain it. When you go to the gender clinic, you're actually not allowed to transition until you have done what they call the lived experience. And this is supposed to be... I don't actually know what the lived experience is. From what I've witnessed, it is just cross-dressing, essentially. Um... So when I went to the clinic, do you want to know how they evaluated that? They said to me on my first appointment, how long have you been doing the lived experience? I said two years. They said, okay, wrote that in my file and that was it. They didn't ask for exit. No, didn't ask for any evidence. Didn't ask, you know, how would you even ask for evidence? Like, how can you get evidence of proof that you've been living as quote living as the opposite sex for two years that they just take your word for it they have no way of proving that you've done it but also it's crazy if i think about i've got very noticeable breasts um so you know i even at my most androgynous or you know in my youth as a young lesbian i used to kind of wear what would be seen as men's shirts this is an interesting fun fact in the old days Right, 40 years ago when I was 20, shirts uh, for men would always button up on the opposite side to women's. Yeah. Crazy stuff like that. But I was never mistaken as a man, um, you know, where people are looking and they think no makeup, no high heels, no feminine frippery must be a bloke. That happens to lesbians all the time, as we know. But I'm just thinking about... Some friends I have who, at first glance, by somebody that imagines women should wear makeup and heels, could actually be assumed to be male, right? And, I mean, I think that's bullshit. I think it's completely assessed on sex stereotypes. What does a man look like, unless we're talking about the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> but she, has she then, despite just being an androgynous lesbian, a gender non-conforming lesbian 
who sits around in Levi's and check shirts, doesn't wear makeup, keeps her hair short, goes to the grocery store, might be assumed to be male, doesn't correct anyone if she's if she's assumed to be. Does that mean she's actually had the lived experience? Because what does it yeah, mean? Yeah, that's making you wonder, doesn't it? What does it mean? I mean, in in the kind of days where where the the term was uh, referred to as transsexuality, um, and that there had to be a panel of psychiatrists to assess whether or not you actually were suffering from this condition, which is how they put it. You know, men because it was almost always men that transitioned would be required to go out dressed in the most obviously kind of feminine clothes. Yeah. Clothes that men would not wear, and most women actually wouldn't, uh, unless they were dragging up. So they were were meant to do that. They were meant to cover their five o'clock shadow. They were meant to use female names and pronouns and introduce themselves as female. In other words, cross-dress and pretend to be the opposite sex. And if that test was passed, that they'd done that, got through it, still wanted to live as the opposite sex, then they could have the treatment and then they could go through that legally. But after, thankfully, thanks to feminism, there, the, the, there is no such thing for many, many of us, especially lesbians, as cross-dressing. We, we just wear the clothes that are... Jeans and T-shirts often. and um, Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still technically a cross-dresser because about 90% of my clothes are bought in the men's aisle because I just find them comfier. It's my preferential style. I like wearing, quote, men's T-shirts and men's jeans, not least because they actually have pockets. But, you know, most of my clothes were bought in the men's aisle, so does that make me a cross-dresser? I still wear boxers rather than knickers. Like, does that make me a cross-dresser? Well, well of course it doesn't. I mean, this is what's, <laughs> this is what's absolutely ludicrous about it. When, it, you know, as a young lesbian in the, in the 70s and early 80s, we were constantly shouted out that we were men, what is it, a man or a woman? And it was because we hadn't dressed up in the feminine stereotypical way. Then you find well that we were female. But I suppose, well, I mean, one of the your your story is shocking, and your story is absolutely. Um, I mean, it makes me very, very, very angry indeed. And of course, I'm really sorry that you were put through that. And you you know, obviously by now, there's an army of us all supporting you, and we'll do anything we can to challenge what you've been through and to support you. I think the. I'm glad I can still be shocked because actually that makes us all human, doesn't it? The thing that shocked me the most, you were given a double mastectomy and no one after that from the clinic contacted you, not just for aftercare, but also all of the, well, the hormones that you were on which have, as we know, side effects, sometimes really serious side effects. Talk me through that, if you would, how you ended up opting for the double mastectomy, who talked you through that, and then the aftermath. Okay, so um, even before I'd been to the Sandyford, I was convinced I wanted to go the whole way. So when I walked into Sandyford, I wanted testosterone, I wanted the double mastectomy, I wanted the hysterectomy, and I wanted the phalloplasty. I wanted it all. And so after I started the testosterone 
they'd said to me, you know, what do you want next for your transition? And I said, I want the double mastectomy. And they said, okay, up here in Sandyford, we don't actually send trans men anywhere here in Scotland. You have to go to Manchester. And I said, okay. And then he said to me, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's absurd. Um, he said to me, we were kind of hoping to get you down there about a year on testosterone, but we're sending so many of you down there that the wait's actually going to be a bit longer. That's what? why I got the double mastectomy in 2017, two years after starting testosterone rather than one year, because they were sending so many trans-identified females from Sandyford down to Manchester that the wait, waiting lists increased. So it was a conveyor belt of young women being sent to have unnecessary, often dangerous surgery without a care in the world that this might be a, a scandal. Not a care in the world, no. So the, I get a letter and it says, we need you to come to Manchester so that we can have a look at you, explain the process to you. This is not for the surgery, this is just a checkup. So you need to come down. So I got the train down to Manchester. Up I went to Manchester General. Went in, they took my blood, they weighed me. And they, I'm not even exaggerating. This is the words that came out of this nurse's mouth. We need to make sure your breasts are healthy enough to remove. So took my binders off. She had a look at me and she was like, yep, perfectly healthy. You can go forward with the surgery. And then I came back up and then it was, you know, you wait to get the, the call to say, okay, you, you need to book a hotel because you spend two days in the hospital, but you also need to spend a day in a hotel nearby in case something goes wrong and you need to return to the hospital. Was this on the National Health Service? Yeah, all paid for by the NHS. So I went down and for the actual surgery itself, I arrived and... They were like, um, you know, just wait for a little bit, we'll get you a bed. And then I went to my bed and beside me was another trans man who had just had the surgery. So he had his drips in and I couldn't take my eyes off him. You know, I was like, okay, that's what I'm about to go through. Um, and he just looked like he was in so much pain, you know? So I was kind of shitting myself by that point. But the nurse comes down, she takes me away and she sort of says to me, you know that there's a, a possibility that you will lose complete sensation in your chest. You know, there's a possibility that you could suffer from, is it necropsy? I can never pronounce it, but your your nipples might rot off and die and fall off, you know? And I was like, yeah, I understand that all. And then she got out the big book. Now, I spoke about the big book before, but I think it's another really important point to make. The big book is a massive folder of all of the surgeries that my surgeon has performed of double mastectomies on trans men and opens up the big book and she said I'll leave you to look through that she leaves the room for a bit and I must have looked at about four dozen five dozen pictures these aftermaths where you see the breasts where the bandages have just been taken off so they're very bloody looking and then the aftermath where I think and I don't know this for certain so I'll emphasize that I think it was six months later where more healing has happened so she eventually comes back and she says, how do you feel about that? And I was like, great, ready for my surgery. So 
Back to the bed I went. The next day they came and got me very early, um, maybe about five or six in the morning. And I was taken along to another separate room and there was surgeons in there, there was nurses in there. None of them really looked at me. None of them said anything to me. I just kind of stood there in my nighty, feeling a bit silly. And then one of them did eventually come and put his arm around me and led me up to the operating table. And before he told me to lie down, they used a pen to draw on my chest where all the incisions were going to get made. And then I lay down on the operating table and the surgeon came up and said, I'm going to put this mask on you and I want you to count to 10. So he put the mask on me and then I woke up and I'd had my breast removed. And yeah, it was... It wasn't how I thought it would be. I thought that I would wake up and feel amazing. But I woke up and I, I was groggy as hell from the drugs. I was, high as a, I was high in the sky. But I can't really explain what it feels like to have no sensation on your chest. It was completely numb. I was wrapped up in bandages and the nurses were trying to wake me up and they were pointing down at my chest. And I looked down and the, the blood seeped through the bandages and just nothing, no sick, couldn't feel a thing. Good that there was no pain at that point, though that would come, but just nothing. And then I passed out and I woke up and I had my drain stuck in me. So you get a drain stuck in just under the rib cage on your side that comes up to drain your breasts, essentially. And I couldn't sit up, I couldn't turn. And as soon as the pain medication started to wear off, I was in a lot of pain. Just in that way where if you've ever had, you know, stitches because you've hurt your leg or hurt your arm, even moving it slightly tugs at it and it hurts. It was just any movement I made, it felt like my chest was on fire. It was really painful. And this is one thing, you're not allowed to inject testosterone before the surgery. They tell you not to do that but I was due a testosterone shot. So a nurse came up to me right after the surgery and she was like, okay, we can, you can do your testosterone shot now, but I physically couldn't because of how much pain I was in. So she done my shot for me. But because I was in pain, I was so tense that when she done the shot, a golf ball basically formed on my leg because you're supposed to relax your muscles when you inject. But I was so tense and so just so uncomfortable and in so much pain that the injection itself was fucking sore. And then I couldn't go to the toilet by myself. They had to wheel me there on a wheelchair. And I was in the hospital for two days after that, just lying in the bed in pain. And then they came up to me and said, you're being discharged tomorrow. Um, do you have someone to pick you up? And I said, no, is there a taxi rank nearby? And they said, yeah, at the bottom of the street. And I got dressed and waddled to the taxi rank and got a taxi to my hotel. I mean, this is just a barbaric... It, it, it's barbaric. There's no other words for this. And the idea that someone's consenting to this is nonsense. Even if you yeah. are begging them to do it, you are not consenting to what actually happens. Remember I mentioned the big book? Well, I wasn't asked if I wanted to participate in that. It was just assumed that I would. And so I was actually sent to another building while I was there. 
I didn't know what it was for. And when I went in, I was introduced to a photographer. What? Yep. Who said, um, we take before and after pictures for the surgery. Can you remove your shirt? So I removed my shirt and he took a picture of my breasts before they were cut off. And then afterwards, this is, so I've had the surgery now. I'm back up in Glasgow. I get a letter from Manchester saying, you need to come back down. We need to remove your bindings and have a look at you to see how you're healing. Because you wear the band, you wear the bandages for two weeks. I was like, okay. So I went back down to Manchester and I went in and she took the bandages off and she was like, oh, you've really stretched one of your scars. And I was like, yeah, um, I've, I live by myself. I can't do nothing. I had to reach up and move my arms. Like I couldn't just sit and do nothing. So yeah, I stretched one of my scars accidentally. And she was like, well, it's healing well and your nipples are healing well. So you're probably not going to lose them. So the bandages are going to come off. Do you, uh, can you go to this building? And it was the same building where they'd t- taken a photo of me. And I said to her, are they going to ask if they can take a picture of my chest? And she was like, yeah, do you know how to get there? Like, all just assumed that I wanted to take part in this. Um, but, you know, at the end of it, I did go along with it. I don't know why, because I don't want to. I just assumed it's what you do when you get this procedure. So I went back over to the building. It was the same photographer. Um, said, take your shirt off. Took my shirt off, stood there. He took a picture and said, um, with your permission, we can add this to the file, which he means by the big book. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I got my surgery. I don't care. And then I came home and I often wonder, you know, even though I regret the whole thing, is my surgery, is my photos in that book being used to show other trans men right now? And the thought fucking sickens me. Right, you went home, you're back in Scotland. Did you get any follow-up? Well, what had happened was, when Manchester General scheduled my surgery, that clashed with my regular bloods checkup with the Sandiford. So I'd called the Sandiford and I said, I can't come for my blood checkup because I'm going for my surgery. And they said, no problem, we'll send you a letter or we'll call you in a couple of weeks and bring you in. Didn't hear peep from them. Now, at that point, I could have called them and said, I've had my surgery and the appointments clashed. I need to come in and get my bloods checked. But my thinking was, I have what I'm happy with for now. I have my testosterone. I've had my surgery. I can't be bothered dragging my arse up there every other month to get my bloods taken. So I'm just not going to call them back. And whenever I'm ready for my hysterectomy, I'll call them back, was my thinking. Mm. Didn't hear a thing for them. So for several months, in fact, longer than that, because I didn't stop taking testosterone until October 2019. My surgery was in July 2017. That whole time I was injecting testosterone, didn't get a single blood check, didn't get any kind of exam. I had no idea what effect it was having. For all they knew, it could have been wreaking havoc, which evidently it did on my innards, for lack of a better word. Not a phone call, not a letter, nothing. I think in their eyes they thought no news is good news and we're already overrun to hell because of how many people we have. So we'll just assume that Sean's happy and just not bother contacting him. I didn't hear a word from them, ironically, until years later 
when in 2019 when I broke down in my GP's office and told him that I regretted the whole thing and he was like you need to go back to Sandyford because they're the ones that deal with gender stuff and I was like I am not going back there I'm not going back to the people that done this to me and he was like with your permission can I at least let them know and I was like yeah tell them that I regret it and then I got a letter from them where they were like we're more than happy to speak to you so if you ever do want to come in Call us and make an appointment. This is two years after the surgery since they last spoke to me. But no, there was very little effort on their part to actually try to have a conversation with me, a patient who they had treated, who my GP had just informed them. And I'm sorry to say this because I know it's quite upsetting. My GP had basically had to say, I have a patient here who's just tried to kill herself because she regrets her transition because of the treatment you gave her. Nothing from them. It's it's beyond callous, and you know every time I hear one of these stories, I get more angry and more shocked. It is upsetting to hear this, but my God, how upsetting must it have been for you to present at your GP, having been suicidal, and having zero care and follow up once they'd put you through their conveyor belt. <clears throat> What then happened? How did you get to where you are now? Well, my GP, and I do, I get along with my doctor very well. Um, so I'm not saying this to like talk down about him or anything like that, but he had no idea what to do with me. And he was like, I don't know anything about gender medicine. Um, if you don't want to go back to the Sandyford, I can't force you, but there's really nothing that I can do for you other than get you into counselling. And I was like, um, okay. I'll talk to a counsellor. Um, so he arranged for me to see a counsellor. Um, and I went. I really didn't want to go. Suffice to say, I didn't have much trust in the NHS at this point. But, you know, my family and friends were all absolutely terrified because my mental, my mental health had went to shit because of all this. I needed therapy, but I was reluctant. But I agreed to go anyway because essentially my mum and dad said... If you don't go and get therapy, we will forcibly move you back home to keep an eye on you. So go and get therapy. Which is fair enough, you know. So um, went to therapy. <laughs> this man, who is a mental health professional, looked me in the eye when I said that I regret my transition and said, perhaps you're non-binary. What? This therapist... When I told him I regret my transition, suggested I was non-binary. Who the hell was he? Was he a ideologue? I mean, oh, oh no, that's not the the rest of it. By the way, he was being shadowed by someone. So I was in the room with three people. So someone was listening in, presumably a trainee, and he'd said to me, "You know, why is it you regret transition? What went wrong? Blah blah blah." And among the many complicated answers I had for that question, the big one was, "I can't be a man." You can't change sex. Pumping me full of cross-sex hormones and cutting off body parts is not going to make me a man. And he turned to his trainee, the person shadowing him, and said, although Miss Watson thinks you can't change sex, that's her views. That Those are not my views. I swear to God, Julie, I'm not lying. So suffice to say, I went back to my GP and I said, I am not going back there. I am not talking to that man again. So he contacted the same clinic, but got me a different counsellor. 
But by this point, I really didn't want to go back. So my best mate, you know, had a bit of a cry. And my best mate was like, please, 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 please go back. I will come with you if you just go back. I'll be there to witness it and blah, blah, blah. So me and my best friend went there again. This time it was two women. And they didn't suggest I was non-binary or anything like that. But they just kept repeating the phrase, you know, I don't really know what to say. You know, maybe you should go back to the gender clinic because they are the specialists who know how to deal with stuff like this. And my friend was like, what about our depression? What about our breakdowns? What about everything else? Um, and they were like, yeah, but the gender thing seems central and very complicated and it seems to be what's well, distressing you the most right now. Well, they'd made it central. They'd put you oh, in testosterone, affirmed your uh, living in the opposite sex and removed your breasts. Yep. So that went absolutely nowhere. At one point, um, my friend had explained the breakdown that I'd had in 2014 to them. And she kind of mis- she misworded herself accidentally. She'd said um, it was a um, dissociative identity disorder breakdown or something like that. For those who might not know, that used to be known as multiple personality disorder. She didn't mean to say that. She mixed it up with something else. And the woman was like, um, well, that's a very controversial area that is still, you know, uh, debated in circles. So we're just not going to talk about that. Um, So my friend shut her mouth and I shut my mouth and we looked at one another and we left early. Like we walked out of there together and my friend turned to me and she was like, I will never ask you to go back to therapy again. And I haven't been back since. So... They shut you up about multiple personality disorder. Whether or not your your friend meant to say that or not is is kind of beside the point. <clears throat> because they thought that that was a contested area and therefore you couldn't engage with it. But young women believing that they are in fact men is not a contested area. The whole gender ideology is not contested. And they wanted to send you back to the clinic that had done this to you, like sending somebody back into a burning building in order to recover from a fire. I mean, that's the thing, that the hostility that I have faced, not from my own GP, as I mentioned earlier, I really like him and he has been really sympathetic, but from nearly every other nurse, therapist, counsellor, doctor that I've seen and spoken to about the regret that I've faced, it's been unbelievable. They don't want to hear it. The minute you bring up transition regret, you're done. They're not going to speak to you. They're certainly not going to speak to you in a nice way. So here you are. You are um, articulate, funny, uh, engaged, critically engaged in so many different issues. How the hell did you get there? What is your support? <laughs> Where? What, what? Why are you... How have you dragged yourself out of the worst depths of despair and depression and hopelessness to end up doing what you're doing, which is extraordinary, your achievements so far? I mean, to simplify it, I will talk more on it, but to simplify it, it was my refusal to stop living because, you know, when I was at my worst, after detransition, after all that absolute horseshit with the therapists, I, I was ready to go. My time was there. I was ready to off myself. But I'd put my family and my loved ones through so much. 
so much over the years where I couldn't, you know. And I was like, right, I'm not going to live like this for the rest of my life. I'm going to find other women like me and I'm going to speak to them. And so I went online and I sought out other detransitioned women. That's how I ended up on Twitter. I had no intentions of becoming an activist. I just wanted to speak to other women like me. And I found a surprisingly large number of them. I was expecting like a couple. You know? and I joined this group that had about, I don't know, I, I, I won't guess the number in case I get it wrong, but a large group. Um, and I was just like, holy shit. You know, and then they told me their stories and some of them were even younger than me. Some of them had had the hysterectomy. Some of them had had problems that I had didn't have. Like eating disorders was a prevalent one. And I was like, what? What? What is happening? I, okay, so I basically, I went from being horrifically depressed and suicidal to so fucking angry that I refused to kill myself. Because I'd spoken to these people and I was like, do you know what? No, this, this isn't going to fly. It was one thing when it was just me. It's another thing now. And I'm talking to a 25-year-old. I'm talking to a 22-year-old. I'm talking to a 20-year-old who's had surgery despite the fact that she was raped as a little girl. It's not going to fly anymore. I'm not doing it. So that's when I started talking out and almost immediately... I dropped my anonymity because I knew I wouldn't be taken seriously if I didn't, so I put my face out there. I said, my name is Sinead Watson. At the time, I was 28. So I was like, my name is Sinead Watson. I'm 28. I'm from Glasgow. I transitioned, and I regret it, and this is what happened to me. And I said to myself from the very beginning, as scary as it is and as painful as it can be, I won't shut up. I'm, I'm not going to do it, and I will keep talking. And now we're here... In 2022, Jids has been shut down and it's only going to keep happening. So I'm, it's, everything is paying off. We've got a lot to thank you for, Sinead, we really have. And we owe you. I hope you are getting loads of support. I hope you're having fun. You're going out with your friends. I hope that you're watching good stuff on Netflix or whatever <laughs> and enjoying your budgies and their hijinks it's amazing to talk to you and just to be able to meet a fellow traveler in the war but from a very very different experience and I'm sorry that you had to go through this and I'm sorry we couldn't have shut those places down before they got to you but you know you you've made a huge difference so thank you you've thank been you. a, a massive inspiration to me for a long time and like I told you you know my mum's a big fan I know lots of people who are a huge fan and so when I found out I was talking to you, it was it was so exciting to, to sit here and speak to you. We absolutely need to meet up for a drink at some point. And I'm very much looking forward to that drink with Sinead. I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Thank you for listening.